0: Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, Lieutenant General uh, Hudson, uh, distinguished guests, friends, and family, thank you for having me. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the museum staff. They have been incredible in their uh, hospitality and uh, just setting up this uh, gathering. I'd also give a special thanks to Jane Leach, who uh, has been incredible uh, in setting this whole program up and and, uh, helping me out with anything I needed. Today I have uh, with me a friend of mine, Steve Luke. Uh, This this whole journey started uh, back in May. Uh, My son, Joe Jr., who's here, he just graduated from Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts with a degree in aviation. And I said, what do you want for your graduation, you know, present?" And he said, "Uh, I'd love to go see Papa Charlie's plane uh, at the National Museum. I said, okay, well, let's do it. And he said, well, the 70th anniversary is coming up. I said, that'd be the perfect time. So I told my friend Steve Luke who's here and Steve has his own private aircraft. And so yesterday we took off out of America's hometown, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and uh, flew in. And we got here last night and uh, my son Joe did most of the flying, which I'm I'm proud to say. Um, (laughs) I'm the ninth of 10 children and, my parents loved all their children. They loved all their grandchildren. They loved all their great grandchildren. But when Joe was born, he was the first son of a son. Although he was the 20th grandchild, he was the first son of the son. So the first one to carry on the name. So my, son, my father had a particular glimmer in his eye when he was born. So thanks for getting me here, Joe. <laughs> well, speaking of my father, let me talk about my dad. Uh, dad uh, was 18. In 1937, he graduated from North Quincy High School in Massachusetts, and he had never been in an airplane. Seven years later, he commanded a nuclear mission that ended a world war. Uh, well, how did he get there? Well, it started out uh, when he was 18, and there was an old naval air station uh, in his hometown of Quincy uh, called Denison, and they were giving out uh, airplane rides for $2. So he and his buddy scraped together $2, and they went down and said, I'm going to take a ride. the guy took him out over Boston Harbor and flew all around Boston and around Quincy, and my father landed, and he just said, I know what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to fly. I just love it. I love it, love it. So he went home and told his mother, and she said, not my son. No way. (laughs) So um, behind her back, he started applying to the Army Air Corps, and uh, he took passed all the tests, passed the physical, passed the sight exam, and and he was accepted. But he needed his mother's you know, to sign off on that. He went into his father and of course his father signed it. He said it was one less mouth defeat. And um so uh but his mother wouldn't sign it. And he was so discouraged he begged and pleaded with her. Finally she gave in and she signed. So he went off to flight school. And he didn't uh you know, think anything about a war. I mean, there wasn't a war at the time. You know, he thought, okay, this is going to be cool because I can get a nice pair of sunglasses and a you know white scarf and a leather jacket and I can meet girls. You know, that was his you know philosophy. in flying. You know, and uh, but uh, all of a sudden, uh, when he was just near the end of flight training, uh, 7 December 1941, the day that will live in infamy happened, and. Uh, the next day, uh, he was uh, commissioned, the second lieutenant, and he got his first assignment to Jefferson Proving Grounds in Indiana. From Jefferson, he went on to Eglin Fields, He became the base operations officer. And while he was at Eglin Field, um, pretty much he got the reputation as if you need someone, you know, to fly something, call Sweeney. He will fly it. He'll fly morning, day, noon, night. He didn't care. He would fly anything they had in the inventory. So he became, at that point, he was qualified in over 60 different aircraft. And one asked, you know, Dad, you were qualified in 60 aircraft? Really? And he said, well, that's all they have in their inventory. (laughs) So, you know, they wouldn't have anything else to fly. But while he was in England, there were very, three significant events that happened in his life. Uh, The first was, uh, one day, the base commander called him up and said, Chuck, we need you to uh, cordon off the airfield because uh, there's a special plane coming in, I don't want anybody near it, you know, I want security out there, and, you know, of course it sparked his interest. He said, okay. So we did that, and then he went up in the tower, and all of a sudden, he saw this plane coming in, and as he said, it looked like the Cadillac of airplanes. It was a B-29, the first time we'd ever seen one. And he said, I gotta get into that thing. So we went to, he went down to the tower, and, and he jumped in a jeep, and he went flying out to the flight line, and that was the first time he met uh, Colonel Paul Tibbets, and Tibbets got out of the plane and he introduced himself and said, "Sir, I'm here at your disposal. Whatever you need." And um, that was that. And then he put his spies all around the base. He said, "Follow that guy. Let me know where he is." And, and that night, uh, Colonel Tibbets went to the officers' club for dinner, and of course my father showed up at the same time and said, uh, "Colonel, uh, I met you earlier today. You know, would you like to have dinner?" "Oh, sure." So they had dinner and. Every chance he got, he told about his flying escapades, and uh, Tibbetts said, you know, I'm looking for some young pilots. He said, I'm flying to Wichita tomorrow. Why don't you come with me? So they did a couple of flights together, and after, I think, the third time, uh, Colonel Tibbetts said, why don't you take the wheel, Chuck? So he, he had never flown one, but he just loved it, and he started flying it. And when they landed, uh, the colonel said, you know, I, I, think, I like your style, kid. Uh, he said, I, I'm looking for pilots and I'm gonna join, have you join my unit. And uh, he said, I'm honored, colonel, but I have uh, orders to India at the end of you know, this year. And he said, well, I'll cancel them. So, <laughs> so my father said, hmm, this guy, I know he's a colonel, but uh, you know, he doesn't have enough pull to cancel orders. And he said, this is the Army Air Corps. It's not the Air Force. You know, the Air Force didn't exist at the time. And he's an air colonel. Well, let's see what he says, you know. The next morning, my father got word his orders were canceled, and he was happy as could be. (coughs) So that was, I I think I said there were three set-up events. That was the first. Every chance he got to fly, he flew the B-29. He knew the plane inside and out. So one day, his childhood hero showed up, in Colonel Tibbetts' office, uh, Charles Lindbergh, and he said, um, I'd like to see the B-29. So he said, well, let me give you one of my best pilots. And my father was thrilled that Colonel Tibbetts picked him to show Lucky Lindy the B-29. So he spent uh, a day uh, with them in the aircraft, and uh, that's my father on the left, and then uh, Charles Lindbergh with the hat. Uh, He was 23, I believe, at that time and um, they spent the day and they they flew that afternoon and and, uh, he was just, you know, thrilled to meet his childhood hero and a national hero of aviation as well. And the third event that happened at Eglin while he was there was probably the most important to me, is that's where he met my mother. (laughs) She was an Army Air Corps nurse, also a World War II veteran, um, and you know, he saw this good-looking gal walking into the uh, officer's club, and it was a typical pilot nurse, you know, scenario during World War II. You know, she was reaching for the salad. He stabbed her with the fork. You know, you know the story. But anyway, um, he met my mother, and then they were married uh, the next year, and, and the brood started. Um, after Eglint they went to Nebraska, uh, Grand Island, of Nebraska, and they were starting to put the 509th group together. And uh, again, he was just flying every chance he got. And then one day, uh, General Curtis LeMay showed up and to Colonel Tibbetts, and he said, show me the B-29. He said, let me give you Sweeney. So my father spent two days with LeMay. And LeMay, as most of you know, was a big, rough, tough guy. And uh, he didn't take any, any you know, BS from anybody. And so my father said, that's fine. I can I can show him. I can get them up in the air and show him how to fly this thing. But that's not what happened. They spent the first day just sitting in the cockpit. LeMay said, tell me about this. Tell me about this. Tell me about this. And, uh, and my father said, it was incredible. He goes, I knew, it tried out, I knew more about the aircraft than I thought I did, luckily. And he said the second day they flew in the morning and the afternoon. And when LeMay got done, uh, he said to Tibbetts, you know, you got a pretty good pilot there. So you know, it was a feather in his cap. But anyway, from there they went on to uh, it was September of '44, and they went to Wendover, uh, Utah, or as Bob Hope used to call it, Leftover. Because it's out in the middle of nowhere if anybody's been there. It's in the salt flats of Utah and there's not a city within 100 miles of it. And that's where they actually started uh, the train for the drop of the atomic bomb. However, um, They didn't know why they were there when they first got there. And as my father used to say, there were certain events in your life that you'll always remember. And one was that on a Sunday morning, he went to church and then he came out of church and an uh, intelligence officer pulled up and he said, get in the Jeep. And they got into the Jeep and he drove about 10 miles out into the middle of the desert. And he's like, you know, what are we doing out here? And he said, have you ever heard of Einstein's theory of relativity? Ironically, my father had read it in 1939 in the Saturday Evening Post. He said, I I read it, I I, I don't remember it, but I remember something about combustion and and, uh, multiplying energy. And he said, yes, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. He said, well that's what we're doing with a weapon. And he said, really? Okay. And he said, and he reached down and grabbed a handful of sand and he said, we're going to have one plane, one bomb, one city, and he threw the. And my father just said, that, "That's impossible." He said, "You, you are firebombing Tokyo every night. Over 500,000 people have been killed there. The city is in ruins. And and how can you have one bomb?" And he said, "Well, that's what we're working on." And he said, "And you can never call it a bomb. And you can call it a gimmick, a gadget. You can call it a pumpkin." He said, "But don't ever use the word bomb." And this is where he was told about the Manhattan Project. He said, don't ever use those words again. And then silver plate was the name of the 509th. He said, don't ever use that word again. And then Project Alberta were the scientists that were developing the bomb. He said, don't ever use that word again. And He says, well, why am I here? He said, you're here because you're going to train the pilots how to drop that bomb. He said, OK, uh, how much does it weigh? He said, how much does the bomb weigh? And he said, you just screwed up. He said, I told you not to use the word bomb. (laughs) He said, well, how much does it weigh, the weapon? And he said, 10,000 pounds. So I used to be an artillery officer uh, in the Marine Corps. And, you know, our motto was, you yell, we shell." So people would, uh, you know, say, hey, hey, you, this is me. You know, I need firepower downrange. Well, that was easy for me, because I'd say, all right, where are you? You're the FO. I knew where we were, where is the enemy? Well, 700 clicks, you know, to my northwest. Okay, so we'll look at the map. In about 30 seconds, we could calibrate, uh, and what was a target? You know, it was tanks in the open or, or troops in the open. We figured out what fuse we wanted. So 30 seconds later, we could figure out the elevation, the deflection, we had the ballistic tables, we knew the weather, and we could put a round down range. So think about this, here's my father who's just been told you have to train people to drop a weapon that's never been used, and you can't talk about it, and, uh, you know, you have no ballistic tables or anything to, to from previous experience on how to use it. But they did it, and um, it was a, quite a challenge. And what they did was they took 10,000-pound concrete pumpkins, as they call them, and they would just practice dropping them from 30,000 feet, and they got better and better at it and they still didn't know why they were doing it and they couldn't talk about it. And they just knew that, you know, it would probably help end the war, hopefully. And uh, so that was his time at Utah. Eventually when the unit was ready and they did the, uh, the, they practiced the uh, atomic bomb uh, at Los Alamos on, I believe it was July 16th, 1945, and it worked. Now you have to remember the atomic bomb um, had never been dropped from an aircraft. You know, that was set, dropped from staging, and it did work. And the scientists were all over the board about what was going to happen. You know, one said that um, it won't work. Another one said that anything within eight miles of the uh, of the uh, explosion will be blown out of the sky. And another one said, uh, you know, it's going to blow up the whole world because it's just going to start a chain reaction. So be, that being said, um, and you can imagine training for a mission on uh, a on a weapon that's never been used, and thinking you're going to be blown out of the sky. So one thing they had to figure out was, because if you fly, uh, I think they were going 360 miles an hour, and the bomb would be explode after 43 seconds. They'd only be within five, if they went straight, they'd be five miles uh, in the circumference of the explosions. They'd be blown out of the sky. So they had to fly... Um, <laughs> figure out a new flying maneuver where after they dropped the bomb, they would bank sharply at a 150 degree, 55 degree angle and get out of there. And that seemed to work. So they um, <laughs> were 12 miles away. So everything's worked out and uh, they get to the Tinian. And um, Paul Tibbets calls them in and he says, um, you know, the tests uh, worked. The President wants to go. So we're going to, uh, he said, I'm going to carry the first bomb on my plane, the Enola Gay. He said, I want you to fly the right wing of, uh, in your plane. My father's plane was called the Great Artiste. And on the left wing, uh, my father had all the instruments in his plane. And on the left wing would be a gentleman named Fred Marquardt, whose plane was called the Necessary Evil. And um, they would fly into, uh, they would rendezvous, take off at 2.30 in the morning on a Tinian. Four hours later, rendezvous um, over Iwo Jima, and then go in on the strike mission. Um, So on August 6th, that's what they did. Um, It was clear weather, and they went in, they dropped the bomb, they banked out of there, and the bomb worked, um, and they flew back to Tinian, and I said, Dad, what did you do then? He said, we had a big party, <laughs> because, you know, it worked. And you got to remember, they didn't know it was going to work. But in any event, um, and I'm sorry, I meant to flick these. These are, oh, this is good. This is him doing the pre-flight checks uh, on the Nagasaki mission. So on August 7th, Paul Tibbets called him in and said, Chuck, um, if the Japanese don't surrender, we're going to use another bomb in three days, or now it's two days. And he said, okay, Colonel. And he said, I want you to command the mission. He said, okay, Colonel. And he said, "Uh, who is going to uh, be my wingman? And he said, I want you to take Fred Block and uh, this other guy, uh, Hopkins. And um, my father said, aye, aye, sir. And he said, what are the tactics? And he said, same tactics. And of course, my father's thinking, okay, 3B-29s coming into a city, yeah, I think the Japanese will suspect something. But he said, same tactics? And he said, yes. And he said, aye, aye, sir. So he, uh, they used the same tactics. So at 2.30 in the morning on August 9th, they uh, had problem number one. They had 600 pounds of fuel they couldn't access. Uh, the fuel pump had broken uh, on Box car. Oh, and I'm sorry, uh, Fred Bach, rather than have all the instruments taken out of my father's plane, the great artiste, and have the guys work through the night, he said just put the bomb in Freddie's plane and Freddy can pl- fly my plane. That's why my father flew Bach's car on that mission. And um, so that morning, Bach's car had a, uh, a fuel pump break, and they had 600 pounds of fuel that they couldn't access. So he said to Colonel Territz, what do you think, boss? And he said, shall call? So he said, well, I'm going to go because when we came back from uh, Hiroshima, we had plenty of fuel left. So he said, okay. So they took off. <laughs> they were supposed to uh, rendezvous over an island called Yokoshima because uh, Iwo Jima uh, had a typhoon coming in. Now, if you, anybody that's served in the Pacific knows about typhoons, and um, so this island was uh, close to Iwo Jima, but was, I think, believe, 30 miles away. So they sent the a rendezvous over that in four hours um, at 30,000 feet. So he got to the rendezvous point. Fred Block pulled up right behind him, and the other guy never showed up. So he said, You know, he's looking at Fred. It was radio silence. He's like, You know, I, I don't know where he is, so they were supposed to circle for 15 minutes and then go to the target. <coughs> they, um, they circled for 30 minutes burning more fuel and the other guy never showed up but it turned out he went to, he thought they said 39,000 feet, so he was 9,000 feet above them. And so they said, he just went, said to Block, let's go to the target. So they started heading to Kakora which was the original target. <coughs> and um, at that point, Um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hopkins broke radio silence and he radioed back to Tinian and said, did Sweeney abort? And that got translated as Sweeney aborted. So all the high command thought that my father was going to fly back to Tinian. So they are all waiting for him, so they called all the air and sea rescue out and said, you're done for the day. uh, So he has a nuclear bomb, no one knows where he is. And so he starts heading to Kokora, which is the original city that was uh, planned. Well, there was a city called uh, Yawada, near Kokora, that they had bombed the night before. 244 B-29s bombed it because they had an armament plant there. When the weather player went by in the morning, they said clear clear sailing to Kokora. When they got to Kikora, it was covered in smoke because the wind had shifted, and all the burning buildings in Iwata were covering the city. Their orders were to drop a visual. So they went in to drop, and my father's bombardier, uh, Kermit Behan, said, I can't see the target, I can't see the target. So they, he said, let me circle around. So they, they were at 30,000 feet, so they, they went around to 31,000 feet because the Japanese arrows were coming up and shooting at them. So they went over the city one more time, and they still couldn't see the the uh, target. So my father said, "Well, we're going to drop this thing one way or the other." So he said, "I'm going to circle one more time to 32,000 feet." So he went to 32,000 feet, and uh, still they couldn't see the target. It was just the city was covered in smoke. So he signaled to. Uh, he, he, he looked to his. At that point, the Japanese zeros were coming up. They couldn't fly that high, but the, the flak was getting pretty close. So he backed out of there and said, "I'm going to go to Nagasaki." Um, Fred Bach didn't know because they couldn't talk. You know, didn't know what he was doing. So he was used to seeing Fred. I believe on his right, and then when he looked over to his his, uh, his left, he looked over to his left, and Fred wasn't there, but he had come up on his right. And he, my father said, "Where's Bach? who was co-pilot, Don Elbury, and he hit the radio. So all of a sudden, Hopkins heard that. and He says, Chuck, is that you? Where are you? And my father just immediately shut the radio off and said, I think I'm going to tell him where I am? You know, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, uh, they headed to Nagasaki. Nagasaki had about 80% cumulus clouds that day. And um, so they they were coming in. They only had enough fuel for one run. Uh, they were going in, and uh, Bean was on the on the uh, site, and he says, "You know, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see?" And all of a sudden, at the last minute, uh, Bean said, "I got it! I got it! I got it!" And my father said, "You own it!" And uh, then they dropped the bomb, and they backed out. At this point, they had uh, pretty much low on fuel. They had enough for 300 miles. They in Okinawa was the closest base. They that was 350 miles away. So they said it's our closest, you know, chance to, to you know, get out of here and, and, and land this thing on, on an airfield. So they they went for it. So we did what was called step flying, where we just sort of, like in a car, where you put it in neutral. You know, we just sort of slowed down and and and, and glided it in. But unfortunately, luckily he made it. Uh, and fortunately, uh, Fred Block stayed right with him. They got to uh, the airfield, Uh, it was called Yonton. now it's Kadena, but um, Yonton Airfield. And they couldn't get the radio, uh, anybody in the tower, and it was the busiest airfield in the Pacific at the time. So he's coming in, and he said to everybody in the plane, any flare you have, you know, just send it out the window. So they sent out every flare. Uh, You know, it looked like, he said it looked like the 4th of July coming in. And finally they, they realized, and he was saying, Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. And they just made the the, uh, the runway, and they they actually three of the engines had given out by then, and they they uh, slid off the end of the runway. Um, so uh, they made it. Uh, he said I, he, as soon as they all came running out, and you know, he said I need secure radio, I need secure radio. So he they gave him a secure radio. He, he, t- he called back to Tinian, and, and you know, said mission accomplished, and. Um, At that point, uh, General Doolittle was there. Uh, He was the commander of the 8th Air Force, and, um, you know, word started to spread in the higher echelons, and he said, uh, tell Sweeney I want to see him. So my father went in, and he said a reporter to General Doolittle, and he's standing at attention in front of his desk. And he said he didn't say anything. He was just looking at him, and he knew about LeMay, but he didn't know how to read Doolittle. And he said, okay, and all of a sudden... uh, uh, Doolittle said to him, uh, I just heard, you know, from Tinian, and they said to say, uh, good job. He's like, thank you, sir. He goes, you're dismissed. He reflected back on life later and said, I wonder if Doolittle was thinking, here I am, probably the last bombing mission on Japan, and he was the first bombing mission in Japan. I wonder if he saw that irony. But in any event, they went back um, to Tinian, they were up, and went back to Tinian, and uh, I just wanted to read one thing. This is a report that General Farrell sent back when they landed at Tinian. <laughs> this is to um, General Leslie Groves, who's in charge of the whole Manhattan Project. It's in strike, and accompanying airplanes have returned from, to Tinian. Asworth me- message 44 from Okinawa, is confirmed by all observers. Cloud cover was bad as strike and strike plane had barely enough fuel to reach Okinawa. After listening to accounts, one gets the impression of supremely tough job carried out with determination, sound judgment, and great skill. It is fortunate that the success of the mission and its leaders, Sweeney and Ashworth, were men of stamina and stout heart. Weaker men could not have done this job. Ashworth feels confident that the bomb was satisfactorily placed and that the The job was done well. Six days later, the Japanese surrendered unconditionally. And that's my story. (laughs) Thank you.